since uh, Steve outed me about Twilight, I'll go ahead and use it to start the message. I do have a 16-year-old daughter. This is why I watch Twilight. I'm not kidding. Yeah, it is. However, it's actually a real excuse. If you have a 16-year-old daughter, or when you have, you'll do the same thing. I read two of the books. It's really all I could get through. At the end of the second one, it was just too much um, gazing. <laughs> anyway. The movie wasn't bad. You know, it really wasn't. It was sort of like the Harry Potter's movie. It was, you know, it told the story. It was, you know, there was a little bit of action, a lot of gazing. And so, <laughs> it was okay. You know, it, it was not the worst thing I've ever seen by any, any stretch of the imagination. It, the, uh, the books, though, do have an interesting point on, underneath, I think. It's sort of a philosophical concept and shocking, but I tended to look for that more than the, the, the story itself. And the, I think the underlying interesting concept philosophically below that is the, this question that, of, of watching Edward's life and his fear that he's going to end up alone. That in the end, he'll, he'll live forever, but he'll live forever with this, this hole in his heart because he never really connected to anyone, and so he went through his life alone. And that, that line in the phrase song just drum, jumped out of me. In the end, everyone ends up alone. I think one of the, the deep concerns of, of humanity, of, of every heart, is this. We go through life, it's noisy, it's crowded, it's filled with people, but in the end, are we alone? There's noise, there's people, there's groups, there's community, there's relationships, but in the end, are we alone? Are we individual islands that bump into each other and occasionally connect but we're alone solitary souls in the midst of a universe that doesn't care very much about us solitary souls that never really end up with a deep connection well Jesus in answering a relatively simple question from his disciples answers that and, and they didn't expect it. And it's sort of fascinating to watch him delve through at deeper levels of a relatively superficial question they asked to unearth something about the soul and get them to think deeper about who they are and what they really want and what they're looking for out of life. And that's where we'll end up going today. And I'll give you a, a little background. What we look at today is the first thing we look at, which we won't spend really much time on at all, is uh, Jesus gives an abbreviated version of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, heart in heaven, you know. And the longer version is found in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, he's, he's got a huge crowd around him. He gives a more extended version of that prayer. But in this one, he's, um, he finishes praying, and then they ask him the question. They ask him to teach him to pray. And I, it, it'll help them understand this. In that, in that time and in that culture, there were standardized prayers among, among the Hebrew religious. They had standardized prayers that they all prayed. A little bit, not exactly, but a little bit like Roman Catholic or some other high church where there's a standard prayer that you pray. They had those. But also, at times, the, the um, leaders, rabbis, would teach their disciples a specific standardized prayer that was for them. And that's sort of what they want. They're thinking, I think, you know, Jesus, he's, 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 uh, he's, he's really smart. <laughs> and he's gonna, I bet he has a great prayer. And so they, they want the Jesus prayer. You know, they want the, that, that version that they're going to get, just the, you know, the 12 of them, they're going to get the prayer that Jesus teaches. And, and that's what they're going to start to pray. Okay, within, with that as the background, we walk into this, this scene. And it's in Luke chapter 11. And again, in this series, Awkward Conversations, every passage we're looking at 
is out of the Gospel of Luke. And for those of you not familiar with that, there are four Gospel accounts, four accounts of the life of Jesus in the New Testament, and this is one of those four. And I'm going to read starting in verse 1 of chapter 11. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. You know, again, they saw Jesus pray and they thought, aha, let's add, I bet he's praying some really cool prayer. Jesus, teach us how to pray. You know, John did it for his, that's John the Baptist he's referring to. John did it for his disciples, so would you, would you teach us? You know, and, and metaphorically, they got, you know, pen and paper out. Not actually, because that wouldn't have happened. But metaphorically, they're ready to take this in. What's, what's the prayer, Jesus? And he says, okay. Here you go. He said, Then when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. The, the only thing at all unusual about the prayer is that Jesus starts out with a real intimate version of, of Father to say this, which, which probably would have made them just a tad uncomfortable to refer to God that way, you know, you know, Dad, it was, you know, Father, some intimate version of that. But other than that, you know, got, we got our prayer, and it, maybe chronologically there wasn't, but conceptually to me there was a space in here. A space in here where what the disciples said is, great, you know, thanks, and we're at least conceptually walking away. They got what they needed. That's what they wanted, right there. They got it. Here's your standardized form of prayer. Here's your Jesus prayer. You know, go and pray. They're ready. That's all they want. They are done. Understand that. They want nothing else. They've got what they want. But he goes on, as he is wont to do, to explain what he says. And it says, and then he said, and they'd be sort of like, oh, okay. And he gives them two illustrations. And they are interesting illustrations. I just will let you know. They are interesting illustrations with a number of edges. There, there is probably more awkwardness in this passage than in any other we've looked at. It just keeps happening. And I'll read this first parable to you, and I think you'll see what I mean. And I talked to you about parables a couple weeks ago. Parables were a distinctly Hebrew teaching tradition where a story was in, a, 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 a teaching, a principle was encased within a story and it was a story that, that people would have understood at the time it, it had you know the cultural context that they would have gotten and, and this is clearly one of those and he said to them suppose one of you has a friend and he goes to him at midnight and says friend lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine uh, uh, on a journey has come to me and I have nothing to set before him now you just understand it's midnight there's no TV there's no electricity. You know, they're not hanging out until midnight. It wasn't a late night. Midnight is really late. It's really late. It's the middle of the night, and his friend is in bed, which people would have, would have done. Jesus tells the story intentionally. But what has happened is, is this. There's, there's a huge tradition of hospitality among the Jewish culture. And if somebody comes to you on a journey, you provide something for them. But often at the end of the day, bread wasn't kept over. It didn't have the possibility preservatives that we have. And aren't you glad for that? It's, you know, doing something to your body right now. But so they didn't keep bread overnight. You know, and, and, and so he was saying is you're out of bread. And you'd go, okay, I'm out of bread. But a friend has some bread. Your neighbor has some bread. So you go over there. You don't really want to go over there at midnight, but it's hospitality. Somebody's coming a journey. So you go and you knock on the door and it's midnight. And your friend says, I really think this is a paraphrase of what the friend would have said. 
The one inside answers, don't bother me. You add your colorful words with that. Don't bother me. The door is already locked. My children are in bed with me. I can't get up and give you anything. He says, go away. (laughs) It's midnight. Go away. I'm asleep. I was asleep. I'm not anymore. And then he says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, he might like you, but he's still not going to get up. Yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. And what he says essentially is, but if you pester them long enough, the friend's going to get up and say, fine, if I give you some bread, will you leave me alone? Will you stop knocking on my door? You know, there's no big, you know, grace or there's no hospitality here. If you leave me alone, (laughs) if you promise to go away, I will give you some bread. Deal? That's all you're getting. That's all, that's all the story is saying. You pester your neighbor, your irritated neighbor, and just by virtue of the fact that you pestered them, he's probably going to give you what you want. And then he goes on. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be open. Jesus appears to be doing this. He appears to be taking off on two concepts out of the Lord's Prayer. One is Father, and the other is give us this day our daily bread. And the rhetorical question he's asking is, why don't you believe God will meet your needs? Even your irritated neighbor is going to give you some bread just because he wants you to stop bothering him. Now, here's a bad application of this passage. So, is Jesus saying, essentially, what God is, God is your irritated neighbor. And he likes you. However, if he doesn't want to do what you want, just keep asking. And if you ask enough, then God will essentially say, okay, here's the deal. If you leave me alone, (laughs) if you promise to leave me alone, I'll give you what you want. Because I'm going to tend to the rest of the universe, but you keep knocking on my door. So, here's the deal. I will give you what you need. You leave me alone. God is your irritated neighbor. That's not a good application of this passage. He has just said, Father, intimate, Father, give us this daily bread. What he's saying is, look, even your irritated neighbor will give you some bread. Why don't you believe God will meet your needs? And inwardly, the disciples are going, Jesus, what are you... We, well, of course we believe God will meet our needs. No, you don't. Why don't you believe God will meet your needs? Why do you live as though God will not give you your daily bread? I gave you your sample prayer. Father, give us this day our daily bread. But you don't believe it. You believe... You're more likely to believe in your irritated neighbor's generosity than in my father's, than in your father's. He said, if you ask, you'll get it. You seek, you'll find it. If you knock, the door will be opened. Why don't you believe that? As they are still wrestling with this, he moves on. And he gives another parable. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a steak instead? Now, you need to think mackerel there, not goldfish. This is not pets. He's saying, which of you, if your son asks for fish, for something to eat, you're going to give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, 
We'll give him a scorpion. It's almost like the extremes are so like, if he asks for a fish, we're going to give him a snake? Of, of course not. Jesus, of course not. If our, if, you know, if my kids come to me and they say I'd like something to eat, you know, I don't go digging out under the house to get some, you know, animal to hand them. You know, I, you want some cereal? You want some pe- peanut butter and jelly sandwich? I mean, Jesus, of course we're not going to do that. I think they're a little irritated at this point. And then he says, if you then, though you were evil, I mean, really, they're like, all we asked for <laughs> was a sample of prayer. And now you're telling us we're evil. Seriously, I wonder how many of them were like, I don't even know what to do with this. They're done. They can't even continue the conversation. He's going on. They're going, evil? If you then, they're evil. Now, how to give good gifts to your children. Even, it's really like this. Even you all will do nice things for your children. How much more will your Father in heaven... And then he does it again. Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. It's like, I thought we were talking about mackerel. And now we're talking about the Holy Spirit? Truly. In context, this is a very confusing passage. Part of the confusion comes in that last little section there. You need, I need to just back up a moment and tell you about what they would have thought about the Holy Spirit at that time. In that context. If, if you've been around the church at all, then you have some sort of sense of the Holy Spirit. You know, the Trinity, God and, you know, and, and, you know God's spirit, spirit presence on earth. And you would sort of get that part. And, and if you've not been around the church, maybe not. That's what it is. It's the presence of God and, and spirit form among, among us. And, uh, but at that time, you didn't, you didn't ask for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit at that time, the, the presence of God to be actually with or in somebody was considered to be an anomaly. It, it happened on the rarest of circumstances, the rarest of occasions, at great moments in the course of the, the history of Israel, just a, a handful of occasions where somebody would say, in the Old Testament, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And here Jesus is saying, it's sort of like asking for cereal. In the same way you're asking for cereal, ask for the presence of God in the center of your life. Ask for Him to dwell within you even though you're evil. I think it's one of those passages where they walked away muttering. (laughs) Out of their depth. So what's he saying to us? What is this passage telling us? It's telling us two things that I'm going to encapsulate into one thing. Because as I was looking at this, I was sort of like, it's almost like it's saying two different things. But the more I looked at it, I realized those two things are saying one thing. Well, what are initially, what are the two things that's saying that boil down into one thing? Well, the one thing it's clearly saying is that rhetorical question, why don't you believe God will meet your needs? Why don't you? Why do we live our lives as if God is less reliable than a cranky neighbor or than we are with our own children? Why, practically speaking, do we act as if God will not give us our daily bread? Why would we rely more on the resources of others or our own resources to live our lives than we would on 
a Father who is in heaven, who loves us. It's almost like he's going, why? Where did you learn that story? A counselor once said to me about a pattern in my life, where did you learn that story? Because it's not the real one. Where did you learn that? Where did you learn the story that God will not meet your needs? Not here. Where'd you learn the story that God doesn't care about you? Where'd that come from? It's not a real one. Somehow in the course of our lives, through a variety of events, we've come to expect little from God. And so we ask for little. And so Jesus says, it's really easy. Ask and you'll be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. You have a Father who waits to meet your needs. So come. It's one thing he says. For some of you, that's really important right now. This, for many, is as trying a time as you've ever lived through. Where things you were sure of and that you could handle, things that were firmly in your control don't seem so much in your control anymore. And you feel out of your depth. And you're scrambling to try to figure out how to put life together again. In the midst of this moment, right now, I think this passage has spoken to us. God is a father who sees your need and who longs to meet it. Start there. Then he says a second thing. He says, if you ask, God's going to give you the Holy Spirit to dwell in the midst of your life. He will give you his presence. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, pictured hell as distance and those who had fallen the farthest were the most distant from others and the most different, distant from God Sartre in his play No Exit pictures hell as people and as irritating as I and others may be what Jesus would say is hell's not people hell's disconnection Hell is separation. Hell is our souls adrift. And I think the one thing that Jesus is saying in the midst of these two things he offers to us is, no, you are not alone. You will never be alone. You are not to live your life as if no one cares for your soul. As if you are disconnected and cut off. I will meet your needs, one, because you need it, and two, because I do not want you to live your life believing it's all up to you. And two, I will come live in the center of your life. I will be present with you. And in the midst of that presence, I would have you know that 
That was the whole point of why I came. Connection. For you to be intimately connected with God, which affects your connection with everyone else. You may have come in here today believing that what Christianity was was some rules that the Bible was going to tell you or some rules that I was going to tell you about how to live a better life. I will not deny for a moment that the teachings of Jesus are filled with wisdom about how to live better. Because there are ways to live that fuel your life and ways to live that unravel your life. But the primary teaching of the entire Bible is that you are not adrift. Or, let me put that another way, you need not be adrift. That there is a connection with a Father in heaven that is for you. So why aren't you knocking? See, when Jesus came to earth, he came to earth and he taught brilliant, if sometimes non-sequitur-ish stuff. But then he moves resolutely toward a cross, toward a death. And when he dies, he dies because, brace for it, here it comes, you and I are evil. I figure if he can say it, I can say it. We're off. When we're honest with ourselves, we struggle with our own selfishness. We struggle with how much we want everybody to wrap their lives around ours. We struggle with doing what we can get away with. We struggle with pressing past other people. And all of those things disconnect us from God and from others. And he comes to earth and he goes to the cross and he dies. And on that cross, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment, he bears, you're in my sin, that which disconnects us from God. He is forsaken. He experiences that disconnection that you and I sense. He experiences it to the full. So he can pay for it and put it away and allow you and I to actually, really, practically, be connected with God in the course of our days. And then he says, ask, and you'll receive. If you were somebody who's explored Christianity or hasn't really explored Christianity, you're just here, I don't mean just, you're here because somebody asked you to come. You're here because you don't know why you're here. I, I would have you know today that what God is offering you is connection. The realization that walking your life apart from Him will not work. And He offers you Himself. If you were somebody who's been a follower of Christ for 30 minutes, 30 years, what I'd have you know is this. God longs to be in the very center of your life. To meet your needs. To give you himself. 
to destroy the lie that you are an isolated island to give you connection. It's real. And it's for you. And the only question I would ask you when there is a father who promises to give you himself in the center of your life, who promises to meet your daily needs, the only question I would ask you is this. Why aren't you knocking? Let's pray. Lord, would you would you open our eyes to reality? Would you crush the self-reliance that gives us the illusion of control? Would you wake us to the beauty of a God who, practically speaking, will enter into the midst of our days? The little needs, the big needs, the needs for connection, the connection with you that fuels and provides intimacy in all the other relationships we wade into. Show us that reality and give us hearts to set aside and to put down the walls that we've erected. It keeps you and us from being connected. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we come to the Lord's Supper today, this was a... uh, you know, it's that he's going to get betrayed, he's going to be arrested, he's going to be tortured, he's going to be crucified, and then he's going to rise from the dead. And before all that happens, he's celebrating the Passover with his followers. And he, he, if any breaks Passover law, he doesn't do what you're supposed to do in Passover. He comes up with his own new interpretation, and he grabs the bread, and he breaks it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you take and eat all of you and then he takes a cup of wine a little bit later in the meal and he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for many for the forgiveness of your sins and this prefigures what will happen just a few days later when a day later when he will die and rise from the dead dead to offer life and as we come today we remember his death but then we take it in and as we take it in we remember that he has come he has died and risen to live inside of us and so if you are somebody who has come into a relationship with Jesus simply by asking him to forgive you and to commit your life whether you're a part of the warehouse community or not I invite you forward when we take communion today if you're someone who has still wrestling with issues of whether or not that's where you want to put your faith, then I would encourage you to, to stay at your seat and just be, be looking through, pondering, reflecting on the questions that you have. The reason why we say that, it does you no good to turn a what's intended to be an important and powerful spiritual ritual to turn it into just barren duty. And so I'd encourage you to wait and just reflect on, on where you are and the questions that you have. That will be a far better use of your time.